What you're about to hear comes from a class I took on God, scripture, and violence and wrote four homilies on that topic. Here is the first one titled Context and Interpretation. Violence is not new. Now, this is not a shocking revelation that requires a great deal of evidence to prove, as all it takes is for one to pause long enough and see how conflict and violence permeate all aspects of society. It can be easy to get overwhelmed by the amount of injustice and hate that consumes the people and systems around us, yet something within many of us cries out to enact change. Some have contended that it is possible to create a just and peaceful society in which violence is eliminated over time. Though such notions are noble, many times I feel as though they can be misguided. In search for some utopia, very rarely are the holy scriptures ever consulted as they are seen as a dividing force that continually perpetuates the notion of violence. Yet why would such consultation be important? Generally speaking, proponents for a just and fair society do not have to be Christian, and as such would not see the need to consult with what the Holy Scriptures have to say. However, Christian or not, the Bible speaks the deepest yearnings found within the human soul. These ancient stories were revolutionary in their time, and I contend that they still are. If the claims of Christianity are true, and we here abide by such claims, then we believe that Christ came to fulfill the law and reveal the character and nature of God in the flesh. Therefore, if one is to enact the just mercy of God to the world around them, it cannot be removed from the consultation of Scripture. Thus, our anchoring point for such assertions come from the entire canon of Scripture. The dissonance found within human nature reveals that one is not at home in the world around them. Something is amiss. Therefore, if one seeks to enact justice in their own strength and power, they will fail to provide a sustainable framework as they themselves are continually searching for something. However, to safeguard against the pendulum swinging to the other extreme, it should be noted that one's home should not be found in their consultation with the Bible as history can attest to. What hope then is there? As I will make the case in the following sections, the Bible speaks to such needs stirring within humanity and provides a map to lead people back home, not to drive them farther away. Taking center stage for many of the complaints levied against God and scripture are violent texts such as that of the Israelite conquest in Joshua 6. How one views such texts is paramount to understanding what the original purpose was and how the original audience would have received it. A key term to this conversation is the use of the Hebrew word cherem, generally translated as destroy totally. It was understood to have four categories in which it could be enacted. One, against inanimate objects. Two, against living individuals. Three, against abstractions representing communities of people. And four, cities. These four general concepts are not far removed from other ancient Near Eastern contexts and stories. Yet, what differentiates the Israelites' intended use of the word had to do with its meaning, not of destruction, but rather removal from use, which is to say it was not a people that was to be removed, but an identity. Therefore, when approaching the text of scripture, specifically 
specifically stories like the conquest, one should view it as a mixture of myth and historicity. A good way to understand myth, then, is not by viewing it as a fake story, nor as a full-fledged historical account, but rather classifying it as a form of wisdom. As I said previously, the stories found within the Old Testament are not that different from the literary tropes used in other ancient Near Eastern accounts. However, the violence that is seen in the founding stories of the Jewish religion is different from the founding mythology of other religions. The difference can be seen in Genesis 1, as well as the Exodus story where the waters are divided, not punished or destroyed, but rather make room for Yahweh to move. Thus, when viewing chaos, we should define it here as that which is the absence of order. Therefore, when viewing the story of the Israelite conquest, the Canaanites should be viewed as chaos creatures, not to diminish a people group, being that such a group of people were not around when the story was even written, but something greater than a call to take up arms against one's neighbor is taking place. How to interpret Hiram. An identity change, not a total destruction of a people. Hiram, therefore, should be seen as a change of identity, not a call to genocide or any other form of external violence. It is also important to note that Hiram was not only enacted to those outside of Israel, but also those within the covenant. Therefore, what we should see within God's justice and the use of harem, as the biblical writers are trying to convey, is a God who rejects taking pleasure in human offerings, but rather longs for a living sacrifice, a life consecrated to the Holy Spirit. God is not interested in the external work that is displayed by people to those around them, but longs to do a greater work in the lives of those who are in covenant with him. We can see this tension between sacrificial rites practiced by other nations, Israel's desire to participate in those rites, and God's desire for neither of those things to play out within the prophet's writings and a continual undertone throughout the Old Testament. Thus, the call of God is not to mimic that which we see in our own context and culture today by those around us, nor is it to go through the rituals that lack depth and richness. No, the covenant that Christ invites us into produces a harem that removes any identity, male, female, Jew, Greek, other than that of Christ, in which the one who hovers above our chaos comes into our mess, and we become participants in the work of Christ to the world around us. But our home is not in the chaos, external or internal, and we can spend an entire lifetime searching to enact justice around us while suppressing the chaos within us. We can become arrogant, trusting in ourselves, thinking that we can love better than God, yet as Pope Francis says, thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our bodies turns, often subtly, into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. Such thoughts produce within us a form of pride that negates our status as creation because as creation we are to hope in our creator because as creation we cannot fix that which is broken. Only the creator can and he already has in Christ. How to engage then with those who are not in the covenant? One final note before we conclude with regard to the story of the Israelite conquest and the covenant that Christ fulfilled and set forth. It is important to see the call to follow Christ as a proposition, not an imposition. What then does the conquest have to do with this? Within the story, the Canaanites are not condemned under the law as the indictment of idolatry comes not from a place of failure to worship God, but rather from the breaking of the covenant God entered into with Israel. 
Israel. Therefore, as followers of Christ, the expectation should not be for people to follow in the same beliefs as you adhere to. Rather, as you live in the sifting of God's Spirit at work within you, those around you begin to take notice and desire what is taking place in your life. So we may have left home, but the choice is ours if we so decide to take up our cross and journey back to the place that we desire to enter the way God has prepared, a way that is open to all, and the choice is ours. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on weekly releases, and be sure to share it with a friend if you think they'll be interested in this content. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.